0: Welcome to another edition of Mongo Spaces. For the past year or so, there's been discussion around a reduction of electricity prices in Kenya and one key player in that process of reduction has been the IPPs. We're very privileged to have three speakers today. They're going to help us expound a little bit more on what exactly IPPs do. And then once we get a good grasp of it, then we're also going to understand a little bit how the Kenyan power sector looks like, who are the key players and all. So to get us started off today, I want to start with George. Maybe George can introduce yourself and then Adam and Abubakar to also introduce themselves. So who you are and what you do. And perhaps you can also tell us how the day has been.
1: Good evening, all. Uh, my name is George Aluru. The day has been cold like everyone else It's a really cold day in Nairobi today. So I'm the chairperson of the Electricity Sector Association of Kenya which is an an association of independent power producers, both on grid and grid-tight. These are the people who produce power with various technologies and sell the power to KPLC. Or they also produce power on your rooftops for more shopping malls and industries. So for both categories we represent. I also do work for a company called EcoEna, which is an independent power producer out of Spain. And we focus on the development of wind, solar, and mini hydropower projects. I'll say more as I go along, but today I'm also in the space with Abubakar and Adam. Maybe they can then introduce themselves.
0: Adam first.
2: Good evening, everyone. And thank you very much for joining. My name is Adam Fitzwilliam. I work for a company called Camco Clean Energy. So we're a, a climate and impact fund manager headquartered in the UK, but we've been around in Kenya since the late eighties and effectively we are a financier. So we're supporting the transition to low carbon economies in emerging markets, with a particular focus on sub-Saharan Africa. Like George said, I'm sure you'll hear more later, but for now, great to have so many people online and look forward to the discussion. Thanks. Thanks,
3: Adam. Abubakar. Hi, good evening, everyone. My name is Abubakar. I'm the chief finance officer of Gulf Power. Gulf Power is one of the first independent power producers. I have been lucky to have walked the journey of development of a project, construction, And we've been in operation now for about eight years. We've also been developing a few other projects here and there. So I have been in this space for quite a while now. And we've seen some of the policy changes and the regime changes. And we've worked with some of the stakeholders all along for many years now. Glad to be here and try and demystify this discussion about PPs.
0: Thanks. I'll start with George. So maybe George, you can tell us a little bit about the power sector in Kenya. How does it look like generally? Maybe a bird's eye view of the sector? And then you can also tell us some of the key players and then maybe Adam and Abubakar can add along the way.
1: Maybe just to start off, power basically has four segments. So there's the generation of power, the transmission of power, the distribution of power, and the retail of power. The Kenyan electricity sector is governed under the Energy Act. So we have an Energy Act of 2019 that basically lays out the rules of the game for the players in the electricity sector. We have both state and non-state actors. At the very top of it is the Ministry of Energy. So there's the Ministry of Energy that actually takes care of the entire sector. And Below them, there's a regulator called the Electricity and Petroleum Regulatory Authority. You probably know them from the fuel prices that they announce every other 14th of, of the month. But other than petroleum, they also do look after electricity and they license and more or less regulate the sector in all the activities that are undertaken in, in electricity. So below, below that, we could then talk of the generation aspect. In generation, we do allow for competition in Kenya. And most of us know of KenGen. That's the state generator. KenGen is also the generator with the biggest installed capacity in, in, on the grid. I think they account for about 70% of the installed capacity, just almost 70. And then we also do have independent power producers. So just to also define independent power producers are basically anyone who's privately generating electricity and selling to the grid or selling straight to some consumer. So it's not necessarily the way Kenyans think that independent power producers are are just the thermal plants or the plants that uh, generate using heavy fuel oil. We have several independent power producers with different kinds of technologies. For example, in wind, there's about 410 megawatt of the 437 that is installed. which is about 93% of the generation from private companies, from independent power producers. We have a similar kind of scope for solar, currently about 120 megawatts, which represents about 68% of what is installed in solar. In geothermal, we have something like 16%, which is about 140 megawatts. The rest is Kenjan. And then the thermal plants represent about 83% of the thermal installed capacity in Kenya. In hydro, is, is much less. There's maybe just about 2% of the installed capacity in hydro is installed by private companies or independent power producers. But then also there's the other segment called the commercial and industrial. And these are the people who do their solar on rooftops. They do what we call captive plants. Which are basically installed at the, at the premises of the customer to help them mostly to reduce the cost of electricity directly and also just in stabilizing the quality of the supply at their facility. So, for this, nearly 100% of it is what you would call an independent power producer, though at a smaller So, that's generation. Then, after generation, so power, you use whichever technology, wind, solar, geothermal, thermal. thermal You produce the electricity and then this electricity needs to move from where you produce it to the load centers. So then comes in the aspect of transmission. And today we also do have a dedicated state company, Ketraco, that is then supposed to move the power from the generation stations to what you would call the distribution station or a a substation that would then allow for distribution of the power. All the new transmission lines uh, since Ketraco was formed do belong to Ketraco, but then the older legacy lines are still under Kenya Power. Though with the recent reforms, there's an effort to moving all the transmission assets from Kenya Power to Ketraco. Then once you're done with transmission, now the electricity comes closer to you. So now this is from a big substation to a smaller substation that is closer to you. Now this is where KPLC comes in. So KPLC gets the power from the transmission system. And then distributes it. So at this, you are talking of voltages of 66 kV, 33 kV. A bit of jargon is just the kilowatt, the voltage level. So at this level, now you're distributing power and KPLC. Then we would move power from the big substations a transmission level to the distribution substations. And then from those distribution substations, they then come all the way to your home or to your industry. And at that level now, when they are actually selling and collecting revenue from the same so, of electricity is what we then call the retail segment of, of, of the electricity sector. So it's basically these four areas. And today the Energy Act 2019, more or less a, a set of framework to allow for competition for, in all these four different segments, but actively at, at the moment, the competition is in generation. There are some movements towards the same competition in transmission but distribution and retail currently is still run by KPLC. And KPLC, of course, is the customer facing part of the electricity sector, but that's how the chain works.
0: And then in terms of the consumer, when the consumer pays for electricity, how does that go up the chain? So like if someone pays hundred shillings, how much goes to each of these? I'm not sure of the exact breakdown, but so KPLC
1: is in charge of collection. So KPLC does all the collection for power on the grid. And here I'm specifically just focusing on, on power that goes on the grid. So KPLC will do the collection. I think from every Kenyan, way. when you buy your, your token, if, if you're prepaid, you do get this SMS with, with a breakdown of, of what goes where. So part of that collection, part of the handle, there'll be VAT, there'll be some levies to, to EPRA. And there's some levies for the water resource management, which more or less deals with uh, the dams that were previously the main source of generation, hydro. And then you have a a component that goes to the energy cost. So with this energy cost component, that's where you pay the generators and all the overheads that KPLC incurs when they're getting the power to your facility. It's roughly about 40 something percent of the um, hundred shillings. Is the levies and the taxes. Then the rest is the cost of generation and getting the power to you.
0: I'll come back to you so you can also tell us what ESAC does. But before that, I wanted to understand from Adam. So you are the regional manager for one of the players in this field. So what exactly does an IPP do and how do you get started as an IPP in the country? Thank you.
2: So taking a look at the history in this country, Typically, there's been proposals, so public proposals to bid for a specific tariff or a feed-in tariff, uh, which you can apply for as a private uh, operator. In general, uh, it's open to all members of the public. What I would say is there's a relatively high barriers to entry. Effectively, the power sector is a pretty high capital expenditure sector. So one of the major challenges for developers is effectively raising sufficient capital at some stage in the process to enable you to effectively get your project from development stage all the way through to operation.
3: Well, Mukaya or Abu here, that's one way of getting into an IPP. The other is once in a while, the government and Kenya Power float a tender based on their plan. Maybe George can speak to the least cost development plan. Then they call for a tender and they specify which technology they want, what's the sizing of the power plant, how long the PPA is, and there's a tender process to that. So there is the feed-in tariff and there's this tender. There's a whole policy on how you can get into the power sector as an independent power producer.
1: So maybe just to add on what uh, Abu and, and Adam are saying, in addition now to the path to get there, there's the fitting tariff process and the, there's a the tender process. And in future, we are also thinking of moving into the auction process, which is more or less a tender process, but now for renewables, there's what you call the least cost power development plan now, and this is the overarching planning framework for the country. And it's a 20 year plan, which is revised every, I believe two or three years, so in this plan, what you do, you take an estimate of the economic growth. So the the capacity of electricity that is required in an economy has some proportionate relation to the rate of economic growth. And there's a planning committee that is comprised of, of state agencies, EPRA, UKPLCs, UKTRACO and some representatives from the private sector. They sit down and develop a model based on projected economic growth. They then estimate how much generation capacity would be required to support that economic growth, together with also what the economic growth would mean in terms of demand for electricity, and also the other considerations whether we want to go like 100 percent green or encourage more geothermal and things like that. Then also what sort of transmission system would we need. So this plan would have a 20-year plan for how much generation will be required, how much transmission will be required to move that power from the generation site to where the load centers are, and also to an extent also what sort of distribution capacity will be required. And this is coming from KPLC. So based on that, they then estimate that, let's say in 2023, we will require additional 200 megawatts. And then that 200 megawatt they then have to check, will it be... 200 megawatt in solar, in wind, in geothermal, in hydro, in whichever technology. And this is more or less based on their estimation of the strength of the grid. So different technologies provide dif- different kind of services to the grid that enable the grid to be stable. And then based on that, they schedule. They say from the feed-in tariff process, uh, there's these projects that have progressed up to the level where they've signed a the power purchase agreement, they almost ready to construct, and therefore they are given priority in the plan. And maybe they're given what we call a date of commercial operation, a date where you're supposed to online and supplying power to to the KPLC grid at a certain year, they plan them over the 20 years. They plan a series of projects that would come on board. And so that's the path. So there's the feed-in direct process or a tender. And then at the moment, we still have to rely on the least cost power development plan then shows over the next 20 years, which projects would come on board and every other two years, they correct that to reflecting the progress that the targeted projects have made. So that's your path to becoming an independent power producer.
0: And
3: perhaps, Abu Bakr, what's a capital outlay you're looking at if you're going to set up? It depends on different technologies, but um, you could use about a million dollars for a megawatt. Uh, on development now, this depends on many factors. So this is just a rough number that we use, but it will depend on the technology. It will depend on how the structure is, how difficult it is to develop and get all the, the PPA, how many consultants you're going to use, and of course, how long it will take. It usually chews a lot into the what we call the development costs. So in coming up with a number, you have the actual physical equipment or construction, and then you have all these other costs that build up, which are significant, to do the studies, to negotiate the agreements with the contractor, with the offtaker, with the lenders, doing all the uh, studies of depending on the technology. And then now, if this takes too long, then it, the cost keeps piling up.
2: Yeah, maybe if I could just add to that. So maybe to give some flavor, for example, for wind projects in Kenya, you've got one called the Lake Turkana Wind Farm up in Turkana. I think it's about 310 megawatts. As a rough proxy, wind is roughly between two and three million per megawatt. So if you do the maths on that, these are pretty substantial capital outflows, particularly for some of the larger projects in Kenya. I think Abu Bakr has also made reference to a kind of uncertain development process. I think this is really key. So, as a power producer, you need certain licenses, permits, et cetera, along the way. And effectively, during that development stage, which can take many years, you have a very uncertain route to market. And so, effectively, as an investor, you're looking for compensation through your tariff once your project is completed to basically recompense yourself for both your capital outlays on the project, your development costs, as well as the risk that you're taking in trying to bring a project to market.
0: My takeaway is that you're taking up a lot of upfront risk in terms of putting up a lot of capital in advance, and then this are that will take a, quite a long time. So from your calculations, maybe they may vary. What is the kind of the payback period for some of these projects? How long does it take you to recoup the initial investment and maybe to generate a feasible return for your investors as well. I'm happy to give that a go
2: first. I think it depends, right? The main levers are how long does it take to develop your projects? Because throughout the development process, you need to employ individuals. You need to employ consultants. You need to carry out studies, feasibility studies, environmental and social studies, etc. So all of these are costs that need to be recouped once the project is operational. So yes, I agree with your assessment. Effectively, you're taking a lot of risk upfront when you don't know what the path to market is for your project. And then once the project is operational, it typically takes many years, I would say somewhere between seven and 12 years, depending on the economics, just to get your capital outlay back. So it's a relatively long-term investment. Most power purchase agreements signed in Kenya are for 20 years. So they're generally 20 year contracts. And the expectation is that, within those 20 years, you would expect to recoup your entire capital outlay, plus your return on investment. So within the 20 years, effectively, you need to recover all your costs and a return on investment for all your financing stakeholders.
3: But okay. I could try and put some context into this. Uh, yes, there's upfront risk, especially if you're doing things like technology, like geothermal, then you have all the risks of uh, drilling, but uh, instead of answering Directly your question about the payback period, let me just try and uh, lay the background on how some of these things are structured. I know we have varied audience, some of them might know, and I ask for your patience for those who already know. So what would happen is you already have a tariff. So your biggest costs are your cost of actual the technology, the construction cost, and then you have all these development costs. Now what determines how... Your payback and how you structure the transaction is, of course, now the next thing is your cost of capital. And then you have things like if you're raising debt, how long is the ten of the debt? Now, of course, all of us like bigger chunk of debt because we always say debt is lower priced than equity. And a longer one then gives you sort of better cash flows. Now, if you have a longer term debt, and try and bring your interest rates down. Of course, they go in the opposite directions, but if you are able to do that, then you have a much better transaction. So the cost of capital is dependent on the tenor, depends on the country risk, depends on what the outlook is of the off-taker. So all these things like a normal lender would look at, would add up to the expectation in terms of your returns. So uh, of course, a better economy uh, attracts better capital, longer, better priced. So, wh- if you have a longer debt period, then you might be able to shorten your payback period. All right.
0: Church, do you have anything to add?
1: No, I think Walker and, and, and Adam have answered it well. But maybe at, at that point, I have seen up to 13, 15 years. So, it really depends.
0: Great. In terms of funding for the IPPs, <clears throat> what kind of mix in terms of debt and equity are you looking at? How does that look like for you guys? Any advice, but just maybe a feel of how you fund some of these projects.
1: It's like 70% debt, 30% equity, mostly. people. But back out again, Adam, feel free to add.
3: Yes, I think that's a safe number to work with. Then it will depend on the experience of the developer, the risk of the offtaker, and then the technology. Of course, there are some lenders who are more keen to take up risk on certain technologies. And are afraid of certain technologies. So those factors will vary between what will determine equity being 20% or as high as 40%. All
0: right. And this is local debt. So are you funding some of this from international debt? Maybe I can touch on the finance
2: angle. I think historically it has been mainly the international financiers who have taken on both debt and equity positions in these projects not exclusively but certainly some of the common funders include some of the development finance institutions you know the likes of africa development bank ifc you know the us development agency as well called dfc but that's not exclusively the case i think one interesting aspect that could really change the dynamics of the sector is to the extent you can get institutional investors from the kenyan market both debt and equity interested in taking on positions in some of these projects because i think my colleague george mentioned earlier one of the things you'll see within your kenya power bills is an adjustment for foreign exchange risk right and the reason for that is effectively the only way or certainly the predominant way of raising the finance to get these projects built historically it's been to raise funding in the international markets which is usually denominated in either dollars or some hard currency and that's really the kind of history of the sector i do think increasingly institutional investors are at least interested in the sector i haven't seen any material progress yet but it's good to see at least increased interest from some of the institutionals locally on how they can support financing of some of these projects i would say just maybe one final point on the capital structure really what finances are looking for is certainty of cash flows right So if you've got a project which has a very low variability of cash flows, because one, you've got credit-worthy utility who pays on time and in full, and two, you've got a technology that is reliable, then effectively that enables you to increase the amount of debt in your projects. And as Abu Bakr said earlier, effectively your debt costs are by definition cheaper than your equity costs. So really in order to kind of drive a low tariff on your project, You want to try and get as much debt as is realistic into your projects. And to do that, you need kind of good visibility and certainty over cash flows.
3: This issue of currency is something as a country, maybe we'll have to look at a certain point. I know in the recent discussions with the task force, the issue of currency came up. Now, like Adam has said, we as a developer would want to participate in policy development. But at the time you're doing your project, you have no time to go start saying what is best or what you think is better to change in policy. However, clarity in policy is always very important in such infrastructure projects because people look at it long term. When you have a policy that's not very clear, it tends to prize in the risk. And then the investors always have sort of a, of a higher return because they say something things are not clear. Now uh, coming back to the issue of the currency, yes, we go for the forex because mainly your biggest cost first would be in foreign currency. You'd be buying equipment from outside. And then now the second most important thing is the debt that will come will most likely be in foreign currency. So if we are to go into kind of shillings, I don't know what that would do to economy. Maybe in terms of billing, yes, it will not have an impact, but at the time of development means I will go and sweep the local currency to pay for the technology at that point. So it's sort of, we spread the change in forex between Kenya shillings and dollars. Either you do it at the construction time or you spread it over the period of the PPA. That's one angle. But the other one is the debt component. Based on the infrastructure projects that we're carrying on, I am not sure whether we'll be able to be competitive. If we are to take Kenya shilling debt, the pricing of the Kenya shilling loans at the moment.
0: Thank you. So, in terms of risk profile, uh, from what I gather from you guys, as uh, so you have. The exposure in terms of maybe debt, debt is quite expensive mostly compared to equity. So then what you have is, uh, oh, there could be the other way around, but debt is mostly always exposes you to the risk of bankruptcy at the end of the day if interest rates rise and off And definitely that's a risk that you're taking on. So you're also taking up the risk. I don't know if the kind of contract that you have with the power producing companies, but then uh, all that is the transmission and the ones who are distributing this electricity and paying you. But then you also have the risk of uh, Forex. And then you also have now a new risk which is introduced maybe in the last two years that so the government also wants the IPPs to reduce the amount of money they charge. Perhaps maybe I can start with ESAC. Uh, you can give us context to the government's requirements or at least the government's desire to actually reduce um, the cost of electricity and where the IPPs uh, come into play and perhaps... In the past month, what has come out is that the IPPs do not want to reduce the the, the the prices they charge. And so putting that in context of some of the risks that you're taking up in the project and also that you also have investors who want to pay back for some of the commitments that they made. So balancing that out, maybe you can give us a little bit of context on your engagement with governments on this tariff issue. We can start with George.
1: Yeah. So Thanks. I think this perception that the IPPs don't want to reduce the cost of power is really wrong. I think. We have had engagements with that PPA task force, even before the task force, we had been engaging with government at various levels. Just to discuss on on what can be done. From our point of view, there are things that can be achieved today. That revolves around reduction of the levies and the taxes, the VAT on power, improving the efficiencies of KPLC. So uh, as at last year, I think KPLC was losing almost a quarter of the power that they purchase. So if we can make some savings there, make some improvements in efficiency in how the distributor runs the network and also more or less just reduce the amount of power theft that is going on in the country, then we could already today see some improvements in the cost. Cause you spread the cost of whatever power KPS is buying over more people as opposed to now when it's only about 75% of the power that is bought is actually sold and they get money for it. Then in the medium term, in our view, again, we need to then shift to better procurement methods for power. So that that means things like tenders or energy auctions, if you like, where different prospective independent power producers would come and they beat independent and also tangent. once we have a framework where there's competitive tendering, the cost would naturally tend to come down. And we've seen this also in markets such as South Africa and and in the Middle East, in, in the Dubai's and UAE of this world, we expect that there are some measures that, that will take a lot more time. So the, the this expectation that we can reduce the cost of power instantly today by a certain percentage is very hard to achieve. But if we prove to the investors, to the market that we are kind of trustworthy, we have a long term plan, we have several rounds of, of tenders, then the risk perception also goes lower. If we carry out an, an auction and people, it seen to be fair, transparent, and the best man wins. And we get that confidence. Then over the long term, the cost of power will continue to reduce. And then of course, in the ma- much more long term is the idea of, of then the evolution of the market. So uh, allowing for there to be many more retailers, much more competition, ability to sell directly from a, a power producer to a consumer. And maybe just paying a willing fee, so a fee of of using the network to move your power from your production plant to where the the consumer is. So these are the sort of ideas we have from ESAC and from our membership as IPPs. And we have, of course, engaged with government and shared this. And really just for the public to know that even we uh, as independent power producers, of course, we live in this country. We pay the same bills that you pay, but for those plants that are, are currently operating, as uh, my colleagues have, uh, have explained around the financing of such projects and your, your expectations of returns, and generally the confidence in the business, it, it's very, I would say, bad to think of tinkering with the contracts midstream because there are a lot of commitments and time and dollars have been put into the development and building of these power plants. And therefore, for us, we see that the more realistic way to do this is to do it gradually over time. And maybe just to pivot and come back to where all this started, I think we must also appreciate that the Kenyan electricity sector is run on what we call a a cost reflective tariff. The tariff at, at the consumer is reflective of the cost of bringing the power from the generator all the way to your doorstep, including the taxes and other levies that I've mentioned. And substantially up to date, there hadn't been as many subsidies, so... You really get the cost of what the consumer is based on the cost of production plus moving it to you. But for the markets that we compare with, and the comparison is normally around Egypt where the people say the cost of power in Egypt is cheaper, in South Africa is cheaper, but if you just Google, you'll see that in Egypt, they have a really big problem with subsidies. I think at the moment they were projecting that they'll spend something like $1.2 billion just in subsidies between 2020 and 2024. So the Egyptian system has been subsidizing electricity and they have realized it's not sustainable. And now they're in a process of removing those subsidies. And of course there's some kind of uproar. So the government has put some kind of stepwise plan over a few years up to leading up to 2024 where the subsidies would be completely removed. I think we've seen similar cases also in South Africa where ESCOM even went to court and they they got the court to allow them to recover, I think a cost of something like 15 billion rand that was supposed to be due to them, but they hadn't because the government was kind of subsidizing with policies that force ESCOM not to recover the true cost of producing that power. And having cost-reflective tariffs, really gives confidence to investors. Investors need to be assured that the market will, will be run in an open manner, not with subsidies that could either be withdrawn or, or cause a lot of problems when you try to correct for the real cost of power. I think we've seen this in Kenya around the petroleum prices. As you know, right now we have a big issue around subsidies in petroleum. We know the international prices. We know what is being collected by the government in, in terms of the fund to stabilize these prices. And generally it's not sustainable. And maybe just finally, because I'm in that line of thought for, if you look at the generation profile of what is used to generate electricity in both Egypt and South Africa, you realize they are heavy on what you would call cheaper fossil fuels, which are actually owned by the country. So like in Egypt, it's natural gas. I think about 70% of the generation is natural gas. And this is natural gas that is local to them. So they can price it the way they want. And then if you look at South Africa and it's coal, again, local coal, about 80% of their generation is that coal. And then compare that with Kenya, where you're now having a really diversified mix of different kinds of technologies. So partly because of the way they generate, they end up in lower costs in terms of the tariff. Yeah, but of course that's assuming you completely ignore the environmental cost of generating using those kind of technologies. But uh, I think even in South Africa today, we see that they are shifting a lot more towards getting more renewables on the grid and generally having the tariffs truly reflect the cost, even as they continue to reform their utility. I'll stop there for now. Maybe allow the rest to give comments.
0: Adam, do you have something
2: to add there? Maybe just one additional point to what George mentioned. So, I think you mentioned that uh, cost reflective tariffs are important for investors, which I agree with. Because ultimately, if you're able to pass through the cost to you of generating or transmitting or distributing, then effectively that is going to increase your financial viability. So, that's how you should at least end up with viable financially stable counterparties. But I think uh, one additional point that at least for me is important is that I also think it's important from a kind of policy political lens as well, because I think the energy sector is one that can be self-sufficient where you can get private financiers basically to help you build, transmit and distribute power, which effectively frees up government budget for other priorities, so development priorities. And I think what you're seeing in the likes of South Africa is a real challenge where effectively the government keeps having to step in to bail out the utility, ESCOM, because effectively they're not a viable financial concern on their own. And effectively that's funding that could go into other priorities. So whether that's industrialization, whether that's social development, whether that's social infrastructure there's competing needs for resources. And in my view, the energy sector is one that can stand up self-sufficient, that doesn't require constant public funds and subsidy to kind of sustain itself. So yeah, from a political angle and from a kind of country strategy angle as well, I think it's very important to have a self-sustaining energy sector so that the governments can focus on other priorities.
0: And maybe to double click on that, Adam, in our country, Kenya Power seems to be struggling financially when you look at it, it as constant bailouts. So then we have the bottlenecks in this process that this company is self-sufficient in the end. What we get is that they're getting charged a bit too high a price on the IPPs compared to what KenGen does. And then because of that, then whatever it is they charge the consumer is still a bit too low for them to cover their costs. So then where is the issue here? Help us understand as consumers of this product in the country. Yeah. So maybe I can make a
2: first attempt and then I'll hand back to George. Look, I think there's been a number of challenges within the energy sector. And what I'd say is effectively the end user tariffs that we all suffer are basically a reflection of the efficiencies within the whole value chain, right? Starting from generation all the way through to retail. And I think at the utility side, there's significant works ongoing on some structural reforms uh, to try and make the utility more efficient, right? And to make them able to reduce some of these losses that George mentioned earlier, whether those are commercial losses, i.e. Uh, people consuming uh, electricity and then not paying for it, for example, or whether they're technical losses, which are effectively due to the lack of investment or poor management of the distribution networks or the transmission networks. So for me, there are multiple potential solutions to this, but I think The broader challenge is that the sector is not currently operating to an optimum level of efficiency. And I think that is really the core focus at the moment. How do we reform the sector to make it more efficient?
1: Maybe just to add, I know there's always this constant comparison between IPPs and and Kenzian. Just to inform the listeners that you can't really compare Kenzian generation costs to IPPs. First of all, if you do want to compare it, then you have to disaggregate what Kenzen has in its generation fleet. So Kenzen has all the, I would say legacy plants, the plants that were built all the way back to the colonial days, these sums and even dams built during the Moy regime. So you have a fleet of, and hydro, I think represents about 838 megawatt currently, <laughs> which is something like almost 30% of, of the entire generation. And a lot of these plants have already lived way beyond 20 years. And I, I use 20 years as a reference cause all of the current IPP plants get a life cycle of 20 years over which they have to recover their costs. And based on that, they then derive a tariff. So if let's say you were to have an IPP that has been running a plant since 1950, Then of course you've already recovered most of your costs and what you're running on is just the cost of operation. And this is the case for actually for all of the fleet of Kenzen hydro plants. So if you really want to compare, then maybe start looking at whatever plants that Kenzen then started building post the year 2000. When we had this issue with blackouts and power rationing, then at that point is when the IPPs were actually invited, the early IPPs being short term kind of thermal plants that were needed to supply more or less emergency power. Then it evolved into the slightly longer term contracts with with thermal IPPs. Then today we have the renewable IPPs. If you compare what Kenzen is producing or the price they're they're producing at with with the new plants, with what the IPPs are doing with similar aged plants, then you'll find that the IPPs are very competitive. And again, I say this with a rider that. Remember that Kenzen accesses capital at very cheap prices. You can go and check in the Kenzen annual reports, just check their cost of capital. I think last time a check was something like maybe 3%. And then they even have certain loans that are 0 point something percent onward financing from the government. So the Kenyan government and let's say the Japanese government agree on a certain project. The money gets channeled through the government to Kenzen. So they can actually finance at way cheaper than what IPPs would finance at. And IPPs, I would say, if you are very good at your financing, and again, I stand to be corrected by my two colleagues, you are looking at maybe five to 7% interest rate on your finance and it's a dollar loan. While Kenjan is looking at maybe 0.1 to 3. So of course that has an impact on the tariff that a similar technology project would have compared to what an an ITPA is having as a tariff.
3: Uh, If I could add uh, Mukaya now, not to take away anything from Kenjan. I mean, Kenjan is one of the leading sort of energy companies in Africa. I think they're doing very well. But on top of what George has said, I think we saw the comparison that was done by certain people in the social media, I think that was not properly done. One, because... It didn't compare technologies. So what it just took is the total amounts paid to or divided by the kilowatt hours produced and then compared some of those technologies separately. So I think that was a proper comparison. If you had to compare, then you need to compare technology, per technology. So that's an addition to what George has raised in terms of all the other things that he has mentioned. Coming back to the issue, you talked about the sector and Kenya power. Look, in Kenya, the power sector financing structure has been one of the best. And I know a lot of people will be surprised by this, but this, actually, in Africa, many other countries are trying to copy what Kenya has done in terms of the power generation. Even the other infrastructure projects are trying to copy the structure that we have in the power sector into the other infrastructure projects. They, we've had IPPs that have started and ended. That is 20 years now, and they've gone off without ever Kenya Power defaulting. So we can say as much as we want about Kenya Power, but one thing about Kenya Power is it has always maintained its end of the contract with the IPPs. So Kenya Power has done extremely well in terms of its commitments to power generators. Yes, Kenya Power has, we can run away. It has its financial uh, challenges. But this are uh, a mix of many other things that uh, I cannot categorically mention one by one. But uh, I think we need to agree whether Kenya Power will be an arm of the government and where its objective will be to make sure that power is available 100% to all Kenyans and at the least cost. Or we're going to let it be a commercial entity that will price its power based on its costs. So that's one important decision that I think that we need to make. And uh, I think we're doing a great disservice to Kenya Power, where we're budding it it with both. We're trying to do the last mile. We're trying to make sure that the power connectivity index is high in Kenya, while Kenya Power is carrying in a lot of its uh, power obligations to the country. You also need a mix of uh, technologies to de-risk certain technologies so that in case you're down a certain area, you have somewhere else where you can rely. And, you know, someone mentioned some of the infrastructure is quite old. The grid is very old. It needs upgrade. Because of the challenges of the grid, you also have planning around the grid. If you had state-of-the-art grid, maybe you'd be able to plan a little bit differently.
1: Just for context, so you understand that the tariff you are charged by Kenya Power is not determined by Kenya Power. This is determined by the regulator EPRA. So Kenya Power has to come up with a revenue requirement to meet all the costs that they have. This includes the cost of getting the power to you, the cost of billing, the cost of their staff, the cost of buying power from both Kenzen and and the independent power producers. And then they go with this to the regulator to ask for a, a certain tariff that allows them to get this cost plus some margin. Over, I think the last three years, Kenya Power, if you check, if you also try and follow the newspaper headlines, they have been re- uh, denied the tariff increases. I think about three or four times. And yes, of course, there's some room for more efficiency at Kenya Power, but also th- there's some justification for certain increases in tariff. Of course, this is not a popular thing. Yeah, but just again to support and maybe qualify what I said earlier, I am not trying in any way to say that Kenjan is is not operating well or that Kenya Power is not operating well, as Abu Bakr said, and I would like to support that also. These two companies, if you compare with what we have in the region, are probably some of the best run. Today, ESCOM is on its knees in South Africa and between here and South Africa, you won't find a better Kenjan or KPLC. They're really doing a good job. But of course, there's still things that need to be improved. And then also that decision over whether we allow Kenya Power to just operate commercially or continue to burden it with certain more social kind of of ideas around what we want to do with our country and, and electricity.
0: Well put. It was meant to be 45 minutes with you and then a couple of audience questions in the next 45 minutes, but now... Uh, we are uh, at the hour mark, really an interesting conversations. I see a couple of requests to speak. So I'm going to allow one or two. So here's how you can get your questions to us. So number one, you can go p- below a pinned tweet, advertising these spaces. We have, we have the pictures there. So just below, you can just post your question and then we will be able to check up some of the questions that you bring up. The second way is to DM us. Our DMs are open. We are keenly watching them to make sure that we have all of your questions. And then also, finally, you can also request to speak. We prefer if you have at least a name to your account or at least a face to your account, we'll try to allow a few here and there. So I would ask a fast experience is here. So maybe you can ask your question and make your comment. Good evening, everyone. Great chat overall.
4: And thanks a lot to all the speakers who've taken the time to educate us through the IPP, I guess, subsector in Kenya. I wanted to talk about a couple of things. So basically basically, capital structure, institutional investment, risk perceptions, and a little bit about KPLC's legacy strength. So in terms of capital structure, I know every one of the speakers touched on a little bit about the capitalization rule, which is 30% equity, 70% debt. But I think in the Kenyan space, especially, we're seeing more and more full equity transactions where people are not taking on any loans and they're trying to build these projects on a full equity basis, whereby they just deploy all the money that they had towards this thing. So for example, taking on debt has third-party due diligence costs that sometimes could be as high as a proper percentage in the development budget. So maybe you're not that interested. It also depends on the type of money that you have. If it's solely your money and you have it and you're just interested in returns, you could just deploy all your money as long as you're getting a, a hurdle rate or a return. But if you're taking interested in deployment at certain stages, obviously, you could also be interested in, in returns, but you could also be interested in multiples and things like that. So I think full equity transactions are becoming more and more common in Kenya. So yeah, that's pretty cool to see. In terms of institutional investment, I know Adam touched on basically institutional investors in Kenya should come in and pull their money and put it into IPP projects, which do have good returns if you structure them properly. But I think if you're talking about pension funds and institutions like that, sometimes they could have rules that limit them to take on quote-unquote risky projects as IPPs. Abu talked about the timelines of how long projects would take to set up. We're lucky that in Kenya, some of these timelines have been short in the past probably getting longer now, but that's uh, number one risk perception. And I think the other thing is when we're talking about local institutional investors, they're probably going to invest in Kenya shilling. Now, as much as Kenya is a market where we can have a, a lot of local content, you know, goods and services into the project, we still need imports. Now, if you're still importing majority of your equipment from a foreign provider, if you're still importing a lot of your services, in terms of installation, operation, maintenance from foreign service providers, then local currency will only take you so far. At some point, you're going to need to introduce quite a lot of forex. So I think as an economy, what we need to strive to do is to be able to produce more of these things that are utilized in IPP projects. As, you know, trying to get more equipment providers to manufacture in Kenya, to get more and more electrical engineers in Kenya to be able to install end-to-end projects from design, for example, all the way up to commissioning. If we can get that done, and Kenya is positioned to do that quite well, I think we can use more and more Kenya shillings rather than dollars to structure these projects and make it that much more, what can I say, bang for the Kenyan the Kenyan consumers back, basically. In terms of tariffs, I think George did a good job of trying to delineate IPP tariffs and the grid tariff, especially with Kenjin. I mean, obviously, Kenjin has a bunch of legacy assets that they've fully amortized, fully paid for. And there's also the fact that Kenjin can borrow at really cheap rates. George touched on that as well. I mean, if you look at it this way, I just checked my latest Kenya power bill. I paid about 19 cents per kilowatt hour. I think before the 30% reduction or the 15% reduction, rather, we were talking more around 23, 24 cents. So Kenya Power actually collects quite a lot of money and I don't think I know a single IPP that makes or that is paid more than 15, 17 cents, for example. So in terms of cost reflectivity where Kenya Power collects a lot more than it gets charged by IPPs, obviously there's the VATs and all these other things, but there's a cost reflectivity that George touched on. So in terms of tariff, I think the regulator is doing a good job of making sure that Kenya Power stays afloat now. The relationship with those tariffs and the risk perception, uh, which ties into some of the things that Abu talked about the KPLC's legacy strength. I mean, I think Kenya is one of those places where IPPs have been in play for 20 odd years to a point where I think Kenya has won, for example, international arbitration against an IPP company. I think that's a first. I don't know any other market that the country has won an international arbitration case and these runs in the hundreds of millions of dollars. I think another thing, most of these projects beyond just the power purchase agreement signed, there's also the component of some sort of credit enhancement or guarantee packages that the government is supposed to provide to kind of make the investor or the lenders happy. If you go around most African markets, what you'll find is these guarantee packages are so onerous on governments, where sometimes they even impinge all the way to the government's ability to borrow in international markets. For Kenya, that's not the case. There's a simple instrument called the letter of support. And it's because of this years of legacy strength of KPLC, the market, being able to say, we're not going to be taken for a ride. We know we've delivered high quality relation, business relationships with IPPs. So we are going to basically not want to be impinged on our ability to do things in the country, but we're still communicating that we are a good place to come and invest. So I think those legacy strengths have to be commended, as Abu said. So all in all, I think this session where we're demystifying IPPs and the investment climate, as much as there's a lot of chatter on Twitter and all kinds of places where the sector is mismanaged, there's all kinds of problems and things like that, the future is quite bright. We just need to manage things uh, properly. It needs to be enabled to be a fully commercial entity, non None of this non-commercial political objectives. The regulator needs to keep on doing its job. And as IPPs, we try as much as possible to do the best we can. Because the stronger the economy is from an investment perspective, there are more credible entities that you will attract. You'll attract less of these briefcase IPP investors that go around places that I won't mention, the rest of Africa. But the more strong and credible we are as a country, I think we're going to be fine. So I think the picture is quite good going forward. So that's my bit. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks. Any responses made from Abu and the rest?
4: I think we're good.
1: We could probably take more questions.
0: Wow. Yeah, right. right. I don't see any questions in the DMs uh, so far. I guess a lot of people are content, but I think this is a very important session in terms of demystifying what you guys do. Cause I think a lot of people don't have that background in terms of understanding what exactly IPPs do in this context. So it's really, really important that we have this discussion. But some of the maybe analysis that we've done in the past, there is an article on the staff which I shared on the spaces above that actually gives a brief history of IPPs and their role in Kenya's power sector. And then there's also some data that we got from the annual report of Kenya Power uh, that says IPPs account for around 30% of power that Kenya Power gets, but they account also for 56% of the total cost of power purchased by Kenya Power. And then also, this is something that, George, you've talked about, that the average cost of power from IPPs is an average around three times more than that obtained from Kenya. So I think this comparison keeps going around and apparently Kenya Power sometimes is selling the power at below the cost price. So maybe that's one of the reasons why it's struggling. Again, comes back to the issue of should it be, I think someone commented a while back that should decided that we want to be free markets or more of a controlled market. So I think That's important there. Those are some of the statistics that we had obtained before on KenGen and the independent power producers. So perhaps just to clarify a bit, uh, George, the payments to IPPs come directly from Kenya Power. Is a contract with government or with Kenya Power? And where does the government come in terms of some of these negotiations?
1: The contract is between two parties, Kenya Power and the specific IPP. But of course, there's a process towards how you develop and license a a, a project. So the government comes in at various stages. When you want to develop an IPP, you are probably looking for land somewhere. You need land, you love to deal with the Ministry of Land on getting that land. After that, you need to do your technical studies. So whether it's a grid impact study, which, which basically is a study that tells you how your power plant would affect the grid when it gets connected. And then you you also do an environmental impact assessment. These are things you have to take to NEMA. So the government also comes in at, at that point. Then, when all these technical things are proved or proven, and this is more basing my explanation on the feed in tariff process, then you take all this feasibility to the Ministry of Energy, which then allows you to talk to KPLC in terms of a power purchase agreement. Now, you, you talk to KPLC and then you agree on the terms of the power purchase agreement. Then after that, also still needs to go through the Energy of Petroleum Regulatory Authority, EPRA, and then at some level also the attorney general has to look at it, the PPP unit, so treasury will have to look at it in terms of whatever risk legal and financial that uh, the wider government takes on behalf of that project or the guarantees that they give on behalf of KPLC for that project. So the government would have looked at all these things. But in the end, the contractual parties are you and KPLC. So even for the case of a negotiation, a negotiation has to be from the contractual party, so the contractual party has to write and based on the tenets of the specific contract, because again, these contracts are not the same for all the IPPs. Each contract has its own terms and conditions for things like whether you want to renegotiate or terminate, or force majeure when something, an act of God happens, so Depending on the specific contract, then whichever party in the contract wants to vary the terms of the contract, then has to more or less, in a good faith basis, write to the other party on that contract. Uh, So that's how it works. Yes, the counterparty is KPLC, but the government also has a role to play in in various other aspects. I guess the main one, and which now causes Treasury and the Attorney General to look at it, is more or less backstopping KPLC in the contract,
3: yeah,
0: but
1: KPLC is the counterparty of the contract.
0: Right. Abu okay. Adam, do you have anything to add? Also in the same process, perhaps you can also give us a bit of perspective on how the future of this sector as a whole looks like. A quick thought that I've been having here is originally, I think most of these functions were conducted by one entity. So... Does the division between say KenGen, Kenya Power, and all this affect how you do business with Kenya Power? Because it used to be that Ketraco, Kenya Power, and KenGen were actually one company in the past. Does that have impacted in any way the way you do business? So perhaps you can respond to that as you Keep answering. Amubakari, so you wanted to answer.
3: Yes, first I'd like to address one of the tweets I saw that has analysis or about the cost comparison of the costs. I think the flaw in some of these comparisons is when you take, like I explained before, the sort of generation, the kilowatt hours compared to the amounts paid or the capacity. Now, George explained that Kenjin has different technologies. So it has the high it has the thermals and a bit of other renewables and wind. So what happens is that we have an economic merit order, Kenya Power Procures Power in a certain order. And now, because of renewables, renewables also have a priority. Then you have technologies like what we call the thermos or the heavy fuel oils. Those are picking plants. They are there to come in when there is a certain peak. Kenya, in this instance, we have our peak between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m., or when there is uh, another power source has gone down. Uh, now that we're going into more renewables, you know, wind, can go up and down, solar can do likewise. You need someone or another technology that can come in quickly. So some of these technologies in the IPPs are those picking plants, the HFOs. So they don't run as much as the hydros or the geothermals. So you will find that what we call the dispatch, which is the rate at which they produce power over the amount of power they can generate over the year is low in terms of percentage, but they are necessary to the grid. So if you are to compare how much these ones were paid against someone who runs the power plant more, of course it will be skewed in terms of cost per kilowatt hour. This brings to an important point that has been a hot debate in Kenya about what we call Capacity payments. Now, it's either you open the market and uh, people are open to buy from whichever source, how much they consume. Or you have one distributor, like the case in Kenya, where in certain power sources, they pay for capacity. So they lease the plant because they're the only off-takers. There is nobody else that you can sell your power to. So when someone comes and tells you, invest in so much megawatts, here, and I will offtake, of course, you'd want to know how much will you oftake from me. Now, it's common to have capacity payment models. It's not unique to Kenya. So some of these plants on capacity payments, and they are picking plants. They are not expected to run as high as the geothermal, the hydro, the wind, and the solar. Okay, solar may be a little bit less, but they're not expected to run that much. Because also when they run a lot, there's a fuel component that comes with it. So as a country, we would want to keep these picking plants as low as possible. So I don't think it's okay to compare first all technologies together and then to compare picking plants against those that run or have priority in terms of what we call dispatch.
1: Maybe Just to make it as easy as possible, there's a really interesting analogy that you can think of in terms of hiring a car. So you have this guy who provides a car for you. You hire it at 10,000 bob every day. And then it's upon you now based on whatever needs of the grid, let's say for yourself as a person hiring a car, based on your needs, you can decide that you will park the car and only use it at night. Then you, some other guy will decide I'll take the car and I'll drive it to Mombasa the whole day. You then come and compare and say that the 10,000 bob, the cost per kilometer of using that car, if you park it or you drive it, is very different. And if you drive it, of course, you also get the cost of of, of the fuel that you put in the car. But at the end of the day, whether you drive it or not, you still pay the 10k per day for the car. And then this is generally how also the capacity payments for the power plants work. I just wanted to explain it that way. Adam can go ahead.
2: Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> I was going to come back on a couple of comments from experience. I thought he mentioned some interesting topics that were maybe worth unpacking a little bit more. So one of them is one that's come up a few times today and that's the kind of trade-off between commercial aims of a viable sector against social aims in terms of producing and supplying power at the lowest cost possible. To me there's a couple of regional examples that we should learn from in Kenya and The reality is that if the utility is forced to pursue purely social aims, the reality has been, and there's historical evidence for this, that consequentially leads to underfunding and a real lack of investment in the networks, right? So if I can pull from a couple of regional examples, for example, in Nigeria, South Africa and Ethiopia, historically, they've very much gone down that kind of social line. And really forcing the utilities to be effectively providing power on a very subsidized basis and effectively performing the role of both the service provider and the charity to a large extent, or at least heavily, heavily subsidized power. And I think whilst I understand the intentions of that, the reality has been, and this is the lived experience in those three countries, that the trade-off is an under-maintained grid and as a consequence, you have very low power availability and security of supply, right? So if your strategy for development is industrialization and to increase manufacturing, as is the case in Kenya, then these manufacturing companies need reliability and high quality of supply of power. And so in these countries, what they've had to do is they've had to basically self-generate by way of diesel generators, typically on-site. And what that means is that uh, they're basically paying a very high individual unit price for power, which has reduced their competitiveness both on the continent and internationally. So I think there are some cautionary tales from some of our our regional colleagues as to the kind of path that the sector should go. And that just because it's low cost on a unitary basis from the utility doesn't necessarily mean you end up with a low blended cost. Once you take into account the fact you have to self-generate effectively to make up for the unreliability of the grid. As Camco, we're an investor in the region. So we don't just invest in Kenya. We've invested in projects in Burundi, in Madagascar, in Chad, for example. And I think just to come back to one of the points that Experius mentioned, for some of these projects, given the utility is so financially distressed. Effectively, you have to take out a bunch of insurances. So the likes of political risk insurances, you have to take out insurances against default of the utility, which as we know is really your sole revenue source on these projects. And you generally have these government guarantees that stand behind the utilities obligations. And these kind of hard guarantees, which are often backed up with things like letters of support from the central banks around availability of currency these structures are very very complicated and as you know with insurance products they will come with a premium right and obviously that premium is then reflected in the end tariffs and what i'd say is if the government has to stand behind and guarantee everything then ultimately this leads to significant liabilities on the government balance sheet which has significant implications in terms of the credit rating of the overall sovereign and also the cost of borrowing at the sovereign level these are systematic consequences of a kind of non-self-sustaining utility model. So those are just a, a few initial thoughts, kind of on a backwards looking basis and maybe some lessons to learn from. And I think Eric, just to come back to your point, which is looking forward, what do we see the future looking like? Maybe just a couple of contributions on my side. For me, I think particularly for large projects, you'll see an increased competition through auctions, which I think most is and financiers are kind of largely supportive of as long as they're transparent and well-run, as George mentioned before. But I think, you know, competition should lead to a reduction in tariffs on a forward-looking basis. I would also expect to see increased participation of the private sector, both in the transmission and distribution sectors. I think one of the kind of structural observations we've made is that if you're an IPP, as it currently stands, there's only one buyer. There's a kind of natural monopoly on the purchase of power, insofar as Kenya Power is, is really the only show in town. And I would imagine that as the market continues to develop and liberalize, I would expect to see increased competition in all aspects of the value chain in the power sector, from generation to transmission to distribution. And I would also expect to see increased penetration of renewable energy sources. You know small and distributed renewable energy which has a number of benefits including providing stability locally to grids but also in terms of risk management you don't have these kind of mega projects where if there's an issue a technical issue it basically threatens the overall stability of the grid so for me the future is more renewable more distributed and more competition across all
4: parts of the value chain eric could i speak? yeah uh, speak to a couple of points? Yes, please.
0: but uh, before yeah. you do, maybe, maybe, there's a question here. Catherine Nerula is asking, in what ways could the government influence an increase in demand for electricity, especially looking at the projects with deferred commercial operation dates in the least cost power development plan? I hope you got that. Maybe later someone can respond to it. Thank you for that experience. You can go on. Sure, thanks.
4: Yeah, so to a couple of points, I mean, I think the auction direction that both Adam and George have have indicated is definitely something that could definitely unlock a lot of value for the Kenyan consumer. And obviously an, an auction system or competitive procurement system needs to be on the back of a track record of delivering IPPs and IPPs actually succeeding in investing, constructing and operating in a certain market and getting paid and with exits and things like that on a financially viable manner. So I'll give you an example. In South Africa, they've had about five or six. They call them bid windows. So they're basically auctions, whereby and all of these are in. I think the couple of first rounds were done in USD transactions, but further on they've been in South African rands. Where they've actually managed to crowd in some institutional capital as well. And we all know, I mean, South Africa has a lot of a very advanced capital market where people can tap all kinds of money, but what we're seeing out of South Africa is returns on these investments have gone down to single digit returns. It's unheard of the rest of Africa where you're doing something as risky as an IPP and you're looking at returns that are single digit. But in South Africa, they've managed to do that through these successive auction windows. So you can see that could definitely translate to really accessible power, even for some of the lower segments of the economy. And in terms of insurance and risk, which Adam touched on as well, I think before COVID, if you were doing anything in Kenya in the power sector, you would not need to take out any political risk insurance or any insurance against off taker non-payment, off-take breach of contract, or even sovereign breach of contract. You wouldn't need to take it out because it was a market where everybody was like, ah, it's Kenya, you know. Nothing of the sort is going to happen, but obviously COVID has made things quite challenging, not only for Kenya, but for different places. And to the question asked by the audience, if I can start the round, I think the Kenyan government has started doing a little bit in terms of trying to increase demand. Most of these projects, they don't really depend on demand from me and you buying power on our KPOC tokens and things like that. You want proper anchor, big business, big manufacturer, big industry, basically. You know, so I think in the last couple of years, I've heard the Kenyan government try to attract data center providers to Kenya, as controversial as it is. You could ask crypto miners, for example, to come in and entice them with most of the Kenyan is It is green, so they're not wasting any fossil fuel, for example. But that could be something different altogether. But I think the thing is to try and attract as many big industrial clients to come into Kenya and do some of the things that they do. And in that sense, I think Kenya is doing well. And from an investment perspective, I mean, between 2015 and 2020, the Kenyan peak demand went up by more than 120%. That is a phenomenal figure. In Tanzania, it's 16. In Uganda, it's 40, I think, in the same duration. So as an economy, if I'm Uhuru or the next president, I can easily tell people that look, people are coming in and there's a proper demand increase. So come and invest, obviously all the other things come around, There's how to structure properly, if the sector is managed properly, blah, blah, blah. But I think in terms of attracting big numbers and the Kenyan economy on its own doing well in terms of local guys doing more and more economic activity. I think we're on the right track. I'm almost sounding like a government spokesman. So, but we're doing well. (laughs) Thank you. maybe just quickly add to, to,
1: I think we also will see, and and actually also what Adam was saying, in the coming future, we'll see a lot more activity around immobility, which also of course will help out with the demand. Then there's a, a lot of conversation and planning around the production of green hydrogen. So hydrogen for fertilizer, for e-fuels, and this, of course, is produced through this process of breaking water using electricity to get out the hydrogen from the water molecule. This itself, if done at a large scale, and there's people in the market already thinking about doing it at a large scale, would really seriously increase the, the demand for electricity. But also as a future trend, I think I would also want to mention, in addition to the stuff that that Adam has said, we will also see more interconnection with the rest of East Africa. So there's power lines already under construction, almost complete, connecting us with Ethiopia, and then also connecting us down to Tanzania. There's a plan to upgrade the connection to Uganda. And then further down south from Tanzania, we could even connect into the South African power pool. And then that opens up the market completely. Because then if you are looking at South Africa, South Africa, their grid is something like 20, 25 times the size of Kenya's grid. And as of today, they are facing serious supply challenges. So as a producer in Kenya, supposing there was already that connection to go into South Africa, then you, you can literally just sell your power to South Africa. And of course, this also helps in the integration of more renewables onto the grid. Because I think Adam Adam and Abu Bakar mentioned about the variability of production from renewable. You you want to have also some kind of support from other sources. So if Ethiopia is strong in hydro, and at that moment they're having a good rain period, then we can get some power from their side. And again, if it's the reverse, like what happened in Ethiopia about two years ago, they had a serious drought and all their hydros went down. So then we can export some geothermal from Kenya, some high, if at that time the hydro in Kenya is doing better, we can also like export in the reverse direction. So this will also be a a trend in the coming future for the industry. Thanks.
0: Before we take the closing round of uh, speeches, Zambi is here. Did you have some comments? It's a very regular listener out there of the spaces. Yes. Thank you for the opportunity. I think
5: it's been a very informative discussion, except that it's been very one-sided because we've been hearing IP people involved in IPP supplies to uh, KPFC speaking, so we don't get to hear the other side of that story, namely the differences between the tariffs charged but as those charged by Kenjen. I know we've had about uh, how KP. APLC does its dispatch by taking the least cost power first and going down to the most expensive. But the reality is if that report by John Gumi is to be believed, the dispatch actually doesn't follow that theoretical least cost power allocation. This is quite a significant allocation mm-hmm. to the IPPs. The other thing I would have liked to hear the gentleman talk about is some of the IPPs are actually quite old, though were established in the MOI days. So they've done their 20 years plus. So it's not just Kengen that is sitting on legacy assets, but those IPP assets are still in operation. And what is more, per kilowatt hour charge under those years for those IPPs, are actually significantly higher than the PPAs signed in the recent past. Those are some of the things I would have liked to hear if there was somebody else challenge the gentleman.
1: Mugambi, maybe I can just try and respond. I, I will answer as little as possible and just say for sure there's no IPP older than 20 years. The contracts are 20 years and you're out. Like they just decommissioned an IPP in Mombasa, a thermal plant that had finished its 20 years. So once the 20 years are over, your contract is over, you decommission basically, or you hand over the asset to Kenjin or to whomever else. And then in terms of dispatch and what the report was saying, I think Abu Bakar tried it and maybe I didn't explain the Kali thing well. There's that analysis of the cost of power from the IPPs versus what is coming from Kenjin. As Abu Bakar tried to explain. If you have a fixed or a capacity charge or a fixed cost of hiring a car of 10,000 and you do not run it enough. So the per unit cost, if let's say it only produces 10 units, then it's 10,000 over 10. But if you were to run it for a longer period, let's say a thousand or even 10,000 itself, then it's 10,000 over 10,000. And in Gumi's report, you will see that they are saying that for these thermal plants, mostly the thermal plants that I think they're dispatched right now, and Abakar can, can correct me if I'm wrong Also, And it's between five and 15% for the longest time, for most of the thermal plants that are within the region of Nairobi, it's only those that were in the coast that actually get run more just because of voltage issues in the coast. So really, even if you look at, let's say now we look at the new IPPs, The solars, the winds, it's not at the numbers you are seeing at that report. That report really, in my view, it picked sensationally on generation from thermal plants, which were being dispatched at a very low level and then use the the charges based on the capacity charge and divided over that cost. And then you end up with a a real huge number per kilowatt hour, but it, it doesn't tell you how much this plant was run. If it was run more than. The per unit cost would be lower, but of course you'd have higher energy costs because now you have to put in more fuel and fuel is a pass-through cost that goes straight to your the Just trying to demystify that. But again, we asked for this session just to really try and explain our side of the story. So really it's not that we are trying to hide from our contrary opinion. Thanks. I think
5: the clarification was good. I was. Relying on the report for the numbers, though, of course, I had some data which would be outdated by now, especially in relation to the Mombasa, Damo, and I think there are some in Garissa as well. But I think it's okay. You do make a good point. The key thing I was trying to get across to Eric is is that when most spaces, there should be two sites in order for the debate to be reached.
0: Definitely, Mugambi. We try our best, but occasionally it's really, really hard to get. A very balanced uh, basis, but also like generally when you read a lots of the newspapers articles, it's mostly the anti kind of IPP. So we thought it would be wise to just hear in a story and challenge a little bit so that next time, perhaps we can have a more moderated discussion, but Once again, soon a CEO will be here and then we can ask some of these questions also. So we go to the closing stages. We can start with Abu Bakr. Maybe you can tell us your closing thoughts for today's basis. What's your key takeaway that you want the audience to go home
3: with? I'm glad that we are opening up to some of these discussions. The sector is definitely something a bit out of the ordinary. So we need a bit of more such interactions to explain some of the Queries or the questions that the public would have. I think the future is bright. We have several things to improve on in terms of policy and things like fiscal property. I think one of the things you asked is what could be done better. I think so far our tax or fiscal policy has been good. We need to maintain it. Recently, there have been a few tax changes that are out of the ordinary. If you do tax changes, normally it's required to have a transition window. So in such uh, infrastructure projects, you do your projections, your model based on a fiscal or tax structure, and you don't expect it to change over a certain time. Most of these contracts have change in law, change in tax clauses, that if this changes, then one party is allowed to vary their contract based on the impact of the change in law and change in tax. So we have to be a little bit more strategic about our planning. In terms of technology, the demand, my pet project about what to increase first, whether demand or supply. Of course, if we are in a growing economy, we'll have to create a bit of supply so that we can attract demand. Demand is tied to many things. One of them is availability of quality of power, cost of power. And then, of course, if it's industrial, we need all the infrastructure around attracting investment in industries. So I'm very happy to be here. I think this was a fantastic idea to allow us to be able to explain some of the things. And yes, upon Akili Mugambi, we're open to having those kind of questions to explain. Of course, being one side, you've already read the report. I think this is more of a response to some of those things that are already written. Thanks. All right. Perhaps uh,
0: Mogambi and experience can also give us their closing thoughts.
2: Yeah. Thank you very much, Eric, for hosting. Uh, Hopefully it's been an informative session for everyone on the call. I think for me, hopefully the key takeaway is actually let's try and get away from these false dichotomies of these against the consumer or finances against the consumer. And let's move towards a more constructive conversation around how every part of the energy sector can improve and become more efficient and more streamlined for the ultimate benefit of the consumer. Myself and I'm sure my colleagues don't propose to have all the ideas, but I think hopefully open forums like this where we can share ideas in a constructive manner will help us build the power sector in Kenya
5: that we all want. So thank you again and good evening.
0: Experience and
5: Mugambi, do you have any points to add? I would say that it was an extremely informative session and I do agree with Adam, that discussions like this for the benefit of everybody. So it's not like there's a fight between consumers and IPPs on the other hand. And I'm also aware that the investments made by IPPs and their funders are are in the millions of dollars and they are obviously not doing charity work and they could decide to deploy that money elsewhere. Obviously they are investing in order to get a return. So there shouldn't be a problem with that because the other side of it would be that the government and kenjen would be able to supply the power and will be the worse for it. So thank you very much. It's uh,
4: Yeah. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, everyone. I would tend to agree with both Adam and Mugambi where it's nice to have these open discussions and especially what Mugambi said about perhaps having more Of the other side on board, your regulator, your off-taker, someone from EPRA, someone from KPLC. Obviously, it's not easy to attract some of these people to Twitter spaces and things like that. But it would be nice to have these open discussions around what can be done, an exchange of ideas, so on and so forth. And yeah, the sector or the economy in general in Kenya is doing quite well. And I think most of the frustration comes from the fact that Most of us see so much potential than what we're doing. So final
0: thoughts, perhaps from uh, George now to conclude it all, since you're more the ESAC guy, and perhaps how do you want future engagements to look like with the government?
1: I think the main thing that we would want to communicate as ESAC, and ESAC really represents the IPPs, is that we are open. We are in this country with the consumers, we are also consumers within the country, are Kenyans. A lot of us are really also Kenyans. We, of course, see the kind of weight that the ordinary person carries in terms of the cost of living. But what we also want to ensure is that we really understand that we need the sector to be viable. We need things to be done in a commercial way. And we are open to come discuss and just get to the best solution that gets us where we want to go. So we need an efficiency market that allows investors to come in, allows the government to deliver on some of their social goals and also ensures that all these state agencies are are kind of profitable or or quasi-state agencies are, are profitable. So again, thanks a lot for hosting us. We are open to engage even in a session where you bring in the government, the regulator, someone else or even a wider spectrum of people. So just know that the whole intention of ESAC is to try and, and together working with everyone who's interested to improve the conditions of the electricity set, for both for investment and delivery of the services of electricity.
0: All right. Thank you all for joining us today for another edition of Wango Spaces. And it's fascinating to have these discussions. I've been heavily educated on this area because it's an alien. And it's interesting that in the sense of power is something that all of us use every day, yet it's also an area of contention in terms of pricing and all. So it's always good to listen to the perspective of IEPPs. For a long time, I've also listened a lot to maybe the perspective of the Kenya Power. I've rarely gotten the chance. So this was a really important discussion that needed to be had. Again, soon we'll be able to host Kenya C also she will be here. So if we can ask her a few of these questions also. And hopefully in the future, we we'll are also able to get Kenya Power and perhaps uh, the regulator to release their side of the story. So, if you have their contacts, forward their contacts to us or let them know that you would be interested in the spaces. Thank you so much, all, for joining us. Adam, Abubakari, George, Mugambi, and Experience. Always a pleasure having all of you on Friday evenings.